This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode number 82. Are you ready? You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Today I interview Paul Morris, who wrote a best-selling book called Wealth Can't Wait. And this was actually the first podcast I did in person. I actually went to visit him in LA. He has his Beverly Hills office there, the Keller Williams office. And Paul is just a fascinating, fascinating guy, really down to earth. But man, he is so accomplished. He's so unbelievably successful and nevertheless so humble and was willing to share a lot of, lot of wisdom and knowledge during the interview. And it's amazing, you know, when you, when you meet a person like that, it always expands your mind. And it's one of those things where I just felt I wanted to be with him in, in person and it was so worth it. So first of all, I definitely recommend his book called Wealth Can't Wait. It was actually like number four in the New York Times bestseller, beat out Tony Robbins and the five love languages. So I was like, man, I got to read this book and talk to this guy. He and his partner, David Osborne, have so many years of combined experience in real estate in particular, cash flow in general, business in general, and a lot of wisdom in there that comes along with achieving a humongous amount of success that then asks the question, well... Is that all there is to life or is there more? And how can I perhaps live a, a life of significance? So the book is called Wealth Can't Wait. In the interview, we talk a bunch of stuff. We talk about you know the value of partnering your way there, the pros and cons of partnering, the seven wealth traps that keeps people stuck. Why don't they do anything? You know, <laughs> why are they why don't they do anything? How to get started if you don't have money? Paul's three rules for investing to not lose any money because he's been doing this a long time. So let's get right into the show with Paul Morse. Hey, Paul, you've been in real estate for, I don't know, what, 30 years? Yes, approximately, yeah. A long time, right? You, you bought your duplex in, what, 1990? Long time ago? Yes. You now own 700 units, all kinds of real estate. I'm curious to know how you got started in real estate. My dad was working class guy who worked super hard around the clock, 10 to 12 hour days, six to seven days a week. And he invested in real estate and... I saw that as providing capital, providing income without without working. I know you might have to work to get the capital. I know you might have to work to analyze the deal. I'm not saying it's a work-free endeavor. But one of the things that I find for sure, and people ask me all the time, how much time do you spend on your 700 units? And the answer is remarkably low, right. almost no time. Right. I spend time on the front side acquisition I'll spend some time on the on the repositioning, but once it's set, it's on autopilot and my team takes care of it from there. You bought your first duplex. Is that the first piece of real estate you bought? And why was it a duplex and not like 98% of other people, they just buy single family houses? Mm -hmm. You went to a duplex and... It was about the opportunity more than the type of property. So mm -hmm. it was a piece of property that was in a great neighborhood and it was definitely a dump in a great neighborhood. It was actually a gorgeous home that had been chopped into a really awful duplex. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I find that certainly in the criteria that I use is the ugly duckling for sure. And in that ugly duckling, there's always great upside. Now, what were you doing at the time? Do you have a job? Or, I mean, what were you doing at the time? I was in school and working in our family business. It was right before I went away. So I did undergrad in Pittsburgh where I grew up. I worked in our family business the whole time and basically went to school and blamed my lack of success for the work that I did with the family business and then went to school and blamed the lack of success that I had sure. in the family business on school. 
Now you so you guys started with real estate really early then. Yeah, that's correct. That's because yeah. you saw the the mailbox money coming in. Yeah, I saw it as an opportunity to build wealth. I've always done it with someone else. And one of the things that 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 did for me was it gave me courage. I'm not sure I've actually made that point. I've been interviewed so many times. I'm not sure I've made that point before. There's definitely this sort of stepping off part where you go from the sidelines to not being on the sidelines. And I've always done it with a partner. Now, I've had one partner for a very, very long time as my best childhood friend. We remain partners on most, but not all of the stuff that we do. And he's a very smart guy. He moves a little slower than me. I think we're equally smart. He moves a little slower. And so we both add something to the table. I'm not going to kill the deal with analysis for sure. I'm going to do the opposite. And he will pick up some things that I miss just for my desire for speed. It's an interesting comment about partnering gives you courage. Actually, if you look at my own partnerships and around around mm-hmm. me, these partnerships, if they're done right, not all of them work out. But if they're done right, it really does propel the individual very rapidly into a whole new sphere. And I think a lot of it does build confidence and courage if you have someone else involved. That's interesting. Absolutely correct. And very counter to what we've just said, if somebody blanket across the board to your listeners and you've got a fabulous podcast and really helping a lot of people get started... And as a flat out blanket piece of advice, if you said, Paul, tell my listeners, partner or no partner, I would say no partner. And that is because I've seen more folly Hmm. in partnerships than anything else. Now, for me, I chose my partner based on brain power and honesty. And so for whatever other pluses, minuses, it's Eddie Krifter, my business partner and, and lifelong best friend. So he's got lots of pluses and minuses other than that. But it's an absolute constant is integrity and brain power. And that's the hard thing to know in partnerships. Sometimes you just don't know mm-hmm. about the person. And I think integrity is at the root of most failed partnerships. Sure. Integrity and, and what leads to integrity, I believe, is lack of clarity. So again, a topic that I haven't discussed, but if anyone is going to do a partnership, I would get the deal points, the exit strategy, what happens when things go great, what happens on a total fail in writing. doesn't have to be fancy, doesn't have to be done by a lawyer, put it on a piece of paper, date it and sign it, and you've got a real understanding. Absolutely not do a partnership without that. Uh, that's good advice. Kind of like a prenup. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Make a lot of yes. sense. At what point did you view real estate, or maybe you did at the time, as a way out or a way to actually support yourself? Uh, a lot of times we start off kind of on the side. We want to supplement our income. And then we kind of realize over time that, oh, my gosh, I can actually replace my income with this stuff. At what point did you have that realization or where you said, I want, I'm going to go after that mm-hmm. as, a, as my primary source of income? Mm-hmm. It was certainly later in the game. If somebody asked me what I do for a living, real estate investor would definitely be one of the things that I would say. And there was some point in time where it was an odd thing for me to say, but after you get to a certain point in that, then it becomes more natural. And I will tell you that a lot of people believe that in order to succeed at something new, you burn the boats behind you. That's probably a fabulous strategy. It's not one that I have used. So what I did, and very similar, you know, with your background is you did so many things. And then along the way, you finally figured out, well, let me invest some money in some other things, some cash flow businesses, as you said, and then also in real estate. And you're not quitting your day job until you have some security with that. Right. 
burning boats is a, is a good strategy, but it does take some guts to do that. And I personally don't believe it's necessary. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so either. Especially with a real estate investment. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Now you've done a lot of real estate investments over the years. What kind of investment do you like best, and, and why? So I really greatly prefer a buy and hold strategy. And when you do a buy and hold strategy, the one thing that you focus on the most is really getting into the right deal. And a lot of the money is made in the acquisition and the early stages of the deal. One of the things, and I do some of this by gut, there's really two reasons the flip side of it is, you know, why not do real estate flipping? And there's two reasons for that. Number one, I'm not good at it. And what I mean by that is there are so many details to manage. I'm not a great detail person. And there's so many things you can mess up. And I've seen a lot of people get hurt in the flippers. People do it and they keep growing and growing and growing. And eventually the market changes, the music stops, and they're stuck with all this debt. And all the equity they built gets crushed along with with the houses that they have online. It was just too risky of a strategy for me. The other thing is, this is a real psychological piece, but I believe in it firmly, is that I would work very hard, what I view is very hard, to do this acquisition piece. And then when I acquired the property, no matter how great it was, I would put some sweat into it, I'd improve it a bit, and I'd have this upside value. And if I immediately sold it and took out the upside value, I was really at ground zero again. Hey, you're so flipping. Now, yeah, so now what? Now okay, now. now what do I do? I'm not ever sure I can get as great a deal as I did before on my next one. Now, time has shown me that I can always find great deals in, in whatever market. But what I do with that great acquisition is I reposition and I put it on my balance sheet. And then I get to say like, wow, isn't that cool for a very long time, mm-hmm. forever, instead of, oh, you know, geez, I bought this house one time and a great buy and now it's, you know, gone. Right. In your book, Wealth Can't Wait, you use a very simple formula. You say live below your means and then invest the excess in real estate. But mm-hmm. at one point, you actually got a taste for raising money. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? So it's a good strategy to build wealth is to spend less than you earn. A terrible strategy would be the opposite. When you spend more than you earn, you're going to spend yourself into the hole. I don't find it to be terribly motivating or a lot of fun to save your way to becoming a millionaire. I know that it can be done. You know, there's a book, Millionaire Next Door. It's all about saving your way to a million dollars. You know, I I mean, I would fall asleep in the first five pages of that book and go (laughs) like, okay, this isn't for me. I want to earn my way into the wealth that I aspire to have. Yeah. In your book, you talk about wealth in terms of, I think you say it's a code for freedom, I think is what what you, and you're saying freedom is the ultimate gift in life. So you're suggesting wealth is not really about money, it's about something else. Can you talk about more about what you think wealth is about and maybe it's a means to an end? What is that? So for me, it's freedom. And one of the things that I would encourage all of your listeners to do is say, okay, well, they want to build all this wealth. They want to earn all this money. And I would encourage them to look at it and say, why? Why? Why do I want to do that? For me, it's very simple. And, and I think having, you know, what I've come to call as a big why is very important. My big why is freedom, the power to choose and create. And I know that wealth gives me that freedom. And very simply, what that means is the power to choose is to choose what I want to do, when I want to do it, and with whom I want to do it. 
And if we could all have that, I mean, how magnificent is that? That's amazing. So the have to's in the world, oh, I have to go to work. I have to report to the boss that I don't like. I have to do this. Really creating choice. So that's the first part of it. And then I just love creation. That's the creation. You take an idea and have the power to take that idea into reality. And that really excites me. Yeah, it's a good point. And I've tried a conversation with someone about living a life of purpose and significance, you know, figuring out your passions. They look at me like I'm crazy, right? So what are you talking about? I work 50 plus hours a week. Mm -hmm. I come home, put the kids to bed. I put myself to bed just so I can get up, do it again next day. Then I need the the weekend to recover just so Mm -hmm. I can do it again on Monday. Mm -hmm. What are you talking about? Yes. A life of significance. Yep. Yep. And that's frustrating to me because I'm, you know, I've been asking myself, what can I do to live a life of significance? Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to have a conversation with someone who, whose mindset does not allow them that because they're so consumed with providing for the family, which is their calling, right? And we all, sure. we all accept that responsibility. But wouldn't it be neat if more of us could live more of a life of significance? I mean, I think the world would be a better place. For sure. And it's a pivotal conversation. It's very funny. I talk about it in the book a little bit. You know, my nephew is a devout Christian, which is kind of interesting given that we're Jewish. So that's cool. And at one point in time, very early in our conversations, he said to me, well, you know, money isn't everything. And it's interesting when people sort of come at it with that view. He and I are far more in alignment than you could ever imagine. And I, and I truly believe with his life's purpose that the world would be a better place if he had a lot of wealth behind him. So it really does allow you to achieve your higher goals. I do think you're spot on about wealth and freedom because when I listen to my audience, they don't say, I want to be a millionaire. They're saying is they want to control their time. They want their Mm -hmm. time back. Mm -hmm. They want choices. Mm -hmm. And so a meaningful first financial milestone to that end is basically covering your living expenses, right? mm -hmm. And so when people sit down and they say financial freedom, we can use multifamily to get there. Mm -hmm. Then the first goal is, well, what are your living expenses? What can you do to reduce those? And once you've achieved that, now you have options. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that people use that word freedom, which is often overused, but that's exactly what they're looking for. They're not looking for a million dollars. They're looking for freedom. Mm -hmm. And it means something different to everybody else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you said something very interesting, and that was, you know, they want to get their time back. People will ask me these questions, and it's so interesting because even in the statement, and it's related to what you were talking about, even in the statement, money isn't everything. Well, you know, what is everything? So everything might be, would include love, would include health, and would include time, time to spend with your family, time to give back, time to do whatever it is that you want to do. And here's an interesting perspective. Wealth and money are absolutely terrible at buying time already spent. They're incredible at buying future time. Right. So, you know, I gave a different nephew money to fly across the country instead of literally take a bus. Think about the $700 buys you a lot of time in that instance. Steve Jobs, obviously very, very wealthy man, was terminally ill. And when he was terminally ill, he had all the money in the world, essentially, to throw at that illness, and it did not stop the illness. However, wealth can provide health. So there are millions of people in other countries that don't have clean water to drink. A very small amount of money buys a lot of health in the future. And even down to love, where you have most married couples fight about money and how to raise their kids. So you can take money off the table and 
and, and work on the second one. Money is really important, right? You have to address it. You can't just stick your head in the sand. You have to provide for your family, right? Whatever that means. So it is actually important and we have to address it. The problem is we can't reconcile earning the money and the time. We can't reconcile yes. the two. Yes. And our challenge is how can we have both? How can we have both mm -hmm. time and mm -hmm. money? Mm -hmm. And that's people's primary frustration with earning mm -hmm. a living is that. And that's what I think. And I think you agree that real estate, specifically multifamily, is a great tool to achieve that. Mm -hmm. But in your book, you do point out some traps that keep people from achieving that goal. Can you talk about some of the, I think, seven wealth traps and what keeps people stuck? Sure. So one of them is being in a comfortable job. Yeah, that's a them. big one. Yeah, so that, and it might not even be the job is so comfortable. It's just that the idea of making a switch is so terrifying. And that's why I think, you know, you don't have to burn the boats. Avoiding risk is a massive one. So right now, I get this question a lot. I don't have a crystal ball. I do not know when the market is going to turn. I thought it was going to turn a little while ago. I, I also know it's safe to say that we are closer to the top than we are at the bottom. What does that mean to me? Have I stopped? investing? And the answer is no, I haven't stopped investing, but I am more careful. So I have that awareness that, that we don't have that super long runway where the market will necessarily take care of our mistakes. So avoiding risk is a big one. And just stay on the sidelines and stay on the sidelines and nothing will ever happen. Safe place to be. You know, you, you're out here in LA and I, and I love that. Doing this face-to-face -face is awesome. I lived in Washington, D.C. for a number of years. I've lived many different places. It's probably true everywhere, but I get the sense like L.A., you know, it's the land of the big idea. And so how many friends do we have with a really big idea? And the big idea, believe it or not, is something that can stop people. It's insidious, can stop people from making that incremental change. Because let's face it, you know, if I sit down and the business plan is this massive business plan, and then we're going to create it, and then we're going to spend all this time, and then we're going to go out and find venture funding and blah, blah, blah. It sounds great. And we start doing all this work. If you and I say, hey, let's build this massive real estate portfolio. So what are we going to do first? Uh, let's buy a duplex. You're like, wow, that's not that sexy. That's not that, you know, there's a lot of work. And what if we buy the wrong duplex? What, if, you know, and then it just starts coming to light. And one of the ways that I avoid that in many of my business dealings is when somebody comes at me with a big idea, first of all, I generally say no to anything that's not in my core competence. But if I decide to do it, I always want to say, okay, that sounds great. Let's start with one. And you'd be surprised how often it just falls to the wayside. And it simplifies the thing, right? Don't, don't talk about your grand dream. Let's just start with one. Yes. And that shifts your perspective. Yeah. Yep. Just Absolutely. that one deal. Yes. People get so overwhelmed with stuff. Yes. Yep. One of the things, mindset's very important. I gave a sort of a, a keynote speech at the UCLA MBA program for entrepreneurs. The title of my talk was Success Without Hard Work and Sacrifice. And we'll have to uh, save that for another podcast. <laughs> but, but one of the keys to that is just, it doesn't have to be that hard. If you're doing something you really enjoy, and we can create this, Michael, you and I know how we can create this in a way we really enjoy it. So if you're doing something you enjoy, is it really hard work? And then the other piece is people really liken massive success with sacrifice. And I will tell you, does not have to be the case. Certain people, we can find evidence for it. So go find somebody who's fabulously wealthy and they'll tell you a terrible sacrifice story. Go find somebody that's not terribly wealthy and you can hear a great sacrifice story. Right. 
Uh, on the other hand, there are ways to achieve success in what you want without giving up something else that's vital to you. I think you talk also about holding on to toxic friendships and weak social circle, right? I think that you mm -hmm. talked about that. That's a big one because oftentimes your friends and your family are really not the best people to be around. I was picked up by a guy in a Tesla yesterday, mid-20s. He came here. He moved here seven months ago from some farm in California because his parents thought he was crazy. They were praying for a soul, I think. He had invented some kind of um, supervillain, and he was creating videos with it. And he came to L.A., and he goes, I am finally home. People don't think I'm crazy. People actually like what I do. Uh -huh. And it was his environment was holding him back, which is really sad because it was his friends and family. And they said, mm -hmm. you're crazy. I had a sense of that early on when, when I was in Pittsburgh. I just... And it's not that Pittsburgh is a bad place. It's a great place. But the friends that I grew up with, the really successful ones left Pittsburgh and found greater lives in New York or L.A. or different places. And, you know, you hear the cliches about your net worth is the average of your five closest friends. And, you know, one of my best friends runs a nonprofit in Wisconsin. And I can tell you her net worth is not massive because she has chosen a social calling I'll never knock her off the, you know, inside five list because of that. But she has wealth in a very different way. And if you view your friendships in that way, you can take a lot from it. And it can take a lot away from you. And sometimes we carry around toxic friendships just because it fills a void for us. You know, and I was doing that for sure. You know, have a friend. Every time he calls, it's like, you know, like all the negative, negative, negative. And then finally I realized, you know, yes, he did say, hi, how are you? But he never waited for the answer before he started telling me the 7,000 things that were wrong in his life that perhaps I could solve. So I felt great by solving a few of them by listening. And it just was not carrying me to a positive place and wasn't allowing me to be the great person that I could be to people who really could benefit from advice or help or, or working alongside them. Right. It's sad though. You know, we have let, let friends go, but I've had interactions with people who believed in me more than I'd believed in myself. And all of a sudden my confidence went up just because this person had confidence in me and surrounding yourself with people like that mm -hmm. just really raises mm -hmm. you up. You've touched on something that's amazing. It's really, I am not sure where I have that written down, but I'll be sure to listen to the podcast and take notes on my own. And, and I will tell you, honestly, it is one of the things that carried me the farthest. And that was the two or three or four important individuals in my life that believed in me more than I believed in myself. Now, one of the interesting things is, it would have to be somebody who I think is amazing. So I'm like, oh, you know, that person's totally amazing. They're like, what? They think that I'm amazing? Right, right. You know, it helps a lot. And when you get the opposite, it is really Devastating. degenerative. Yeah, yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Any more on your list? You know, one of the things you talked about before was dealing with setbacks and how to deal with setbacks. And it's also, it's part of this sort of seven ways you're hurting your chances at building wealth. And one of them, on one hand, I believe that the best way to create success is to take responsibility, take responsibility for absolutely everything mm -hmm. so that, oh, you know, well, there's a, there's a whole story about why it didn't work. You know, it was the contractor. It was that, well, who chose the contractor, you know, and it was the, this and that, and I didn't realize just take responsibility for all of it, and that will propel your success. In order to do that and to do it successfully and in order to do it with ease 
is not to victimize yourself. So I will, on one hand, take responsibility for all the plus minus. On the other hand, I forgive myself very easily. Mm. So if you are a person that feels like they cannot make a mistake or a mistake would be devastating, it's going to be a tremendous impediment to you getting into the investing game for sure. And so if you feel that way, that's okay. Just have that awareness. They're like, wow, I'm so afraid that none of my friends are doing this. So now all of a sudden, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to fail. And they're going to say, oh, you know, we knew that was going to happen. You're a knucklehead or, you know, you have this feeling inside like I could fail. And then when you fail, you go, oh, I knew it. You know, just being really light with yourself. I make lots of mistakes and keep charging forward. And one of the ways to keep charging forward is I take responsibility. I'm not blaming the mistakes on someone else. As soon as you do that, you're apt to make the same mistake again. Hmm. As soon as you take responsibility from it, you can turn the, the mistake into a lesson. And what keeps you going is really the fact that, that I'm easy with myself on it. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, a lot of people, and I see it even with some of my coaching students, two and a half months into it, they don't have their first deal yet. Mm-hmm. And it's taking longer. It's taking more work, and and they get really down on themselves. And that's the purpose of a, of a coach is to help someone get through that setback because they're inevitable. It takes longer. There's some challenges, right? And so really being able to deal with that. And I think one of them is giving up or not staying the course through setbacks or challenges or delays. Being able to deal with that for sure. Michael didn't did not ask me to uh, do this before the podcast, but I will tell you that coaching from Michael will really help. And one of the things that I've found is you could put me in a room with a bunch of entrepreneurs. I do it all the time. And the advice that I give, it just sounds so sage. Oh, wow. You know, he's so smart. You know, this is why we don't invest because we'll look at I I listen to my co-author and I go, wow, you know, I'm so impressed. And the interesting thing is someone who can give fabulous advice to somebody else very, very difficult to find your own blind spots. So someone who is 50% as skilled as I am could still serve as a great coach to me. And that's because you think you might know it all. I think that's one of your lists, right? Right, right, right. That's really dangerous, yeah. And in that, in that I know for sure I don't know it all, for sure. And I also know that even the things that I know aren't always obvious or accessible to me. And that's why a business partner, that's why a coach can really help. Yeah. And one of the things I get a lot is, this is all great, Paul, you know, but I don't really have any money. I can barely afford my rent or my mortgage. You know, how do I start investing? What Mm -hmm. do you, what do you tell that person? So there are two ways I'll go with the, and I've done them both and I'll go with the simplest, easiest, most obvious one first. And that is if you don't own your own home, you should buy a home. And here's how you do it. I was already investing in real estate and I lived in Washington, DC and I was renting. So here I am, multifamily owner, but I'm renting an apartment and I continued to rent for quite some time. One of the reasons was that I did not want to buy in the suburbs. I didn't want to live in the suburbs. I didn't view the value of the suburbs going up tremendously Mm -hmm. the same way the inner city would. And I just love being love being in the city. So what I did was I saved up enough money for the down payment. Now the down payment on your own home owner occupy is a lot different than an investment property. So at that time, 
you could do a 5% down deal. Mm-hmm. You still can do way less money down on a, on an owner occupier. Right. They just know that you're less likely to default on that. You can get better rates right. and you can put less money down. And so what I did was I bought a house that I certainly could not afford the mortgage on, but I did have enough to put the 5% down. And when I did that, I put three roommates in it right. with me. And so I eventually got to the point where I was living in this wonderful house for free, for free that other people were living with me. And, you know, it's just like the all the impediments that you have against that. There are a lot of people living with roommates that that they don't own their own place. The other thing that I did was I went to some of my favorite people and I said, you know, hey, I'd like you to consider living with me. They couldn't afford the market rent for the space that I was going to rent for them. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, well, the market rent would be eleven hundred. What are you What are you paying now? Seven hundred. I'm like, okay, fine, move in. Can you afford eight hundred? So they were getting a better deal than they otherwise would. And I was living with people that I wanted to live with. I was not putting an ad out to have strangers live in my house. So there's always a way. The second way is to use other people's money, and that I, that I did as well. It comes with added responsibility for sure. And the way to do that is to have expertise in a particular area, learn the investment tips that we talk about. Instead of saying, hey, just give me some money to invest, the easiest way to get an investor is find the property first. Find the property first. Now you know the deal. Now you've got concrete example and you go, okay, put the money in for the deal and I'll run the deal and we'll we'll figure out a way to split it. Yeah, exactly right. Other people's money. Yes, absolutely. You don't need need your own money. Exactly right. Now, you've been investing a long time. Now, you say you've never lost money, which I find hard to believe. Maybe it's actually true. <laughs> yes. But you've, you've kind of built up your rules for investing, which can you share those with the listeners? I think they're fantastic. Sure. It sounds so impressive when I say that I've been investing for 25 years and I've never lost money in investment. As soon as you hear the rules, you'll be like, well, that's why he hasn't lost money. You know, <laughs> right, right. Just follow these rules. Right. So one of them is pretty basic, and that's just buy where you know. And let me also say... Lots of very fabulous investors who really know the investment game as much or way more than me are investing all over the place. If you can, start with where you know. So there's only two places that I own real estate, and that's Pittsburgh, which is where I'm from. And I stopped investing there a long time ago, but I still have units there and Los Angeles. So now you really have sort of middle market and very expensive accelerating market. Mm -hmm. But I'm not buying in Texas. I'm not buying in these other places where people say that it's great. And one of the reasons you just don't know. You don't know it. You can't control it. You can't fix it. You can't predict, you know, oddities when it's so far away. So buy where you know is number one. Number two, really important is buy value add. And so by value add, it sounds fancy. The far less fancy way to say it is a little cliche, and that is you buy the worst house in the best neighborhood. So I'm not actually buying the worst house in the best neighborhood, but I am buying definitely the ugly duckling in a really good neighborhood or in a gentrifying neighborhood, a neighborhood that's really on the rise. I could share with you some ideas about how to figure out what's on the rise and what isn't. And one of my rules of thumb is when 25% or more of the properties have already changed, then it's a great time to get in to that neighborhood. And once 75% of them have already changed, then that last 25%, the upside's already built in and the values aren't there. Interestingly, when you get down to the ground level on it, 
once a neighborhood is already 25% turned, all of the neighbors will be saying like, oh my gosh, did you see what that house went? Like, that's insane. You know, there's a lot of reasons that people give for not investing once it's hit the 25% mark, but that's really the sweet spot. And then the third rule is buy cash flow so that the property's cash flow. Now, where I deviate regularly from that is I could certainly buy a piece of property that I have a really modest fix up that will take me into cash flow. So maybe I'm buying a property that's only 60 to 70% filled. And so what I'll do is make modest changes, you know, make it look good from curb appeal, make sure it's safe, great lighting, security system added, common areas all nice, and then really redo the unit so that it's not posh, but it's clean and fresh. And then what you end up having is you have sort of the nicest entry-level apartment into a great neighborhood, and those things fill up immediately. Right. So you move from 60 to 70% occupied to literally 100% occupied in one rental season. And when I buy it, it might not be cash flowing, but within that one rental season, it will cash flow or I won't buy it. Right. Exactly right. Yeah. Those are good rules. I can see now you right. stick to those there rules. There you go. Right. And you start deviating from so you might get yourself in trouble. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So what are you excited about right now, Paul? Well, I'm still looking at great neighborhoods in Los Angeles that are that are turning the corner and adding value in those neighborhoods. And there's a lot of money that you can harvest. And I think while doing it, really improving the neighborhood. So taking, you know, C minus properties, really improving them to a B plus property and providing great, safe, livable units in neighborhoods that are that are really turning the corner. That's what continues to be what I'm really excited about on the multi-family front. Other than that, it's like traveling with my daughter. I just went to Japan. That was cool. Traveling with my girlfriend. Went to see the solar eclipse. That was cool. Uh-huh. Becoming a better table tennis player. Oh, very good. There you go. What is your perfect day like? That's a great question. And it is one that definitely includes freedom. So I grew up going through law school, working very hard at things that I didn't enjoy, going to a law firm, dressing up. So, you know, sort of being dressed casually, working out of, uh, I have a great office here in Beverly Hills of, you know, can work out of a beautiful house where I live, but I like to go to a cool coffee shop, look at deals, look at some paperwork, just a really wide, varied set of things to do that bring energy to me and don't take energy away. And then, you know, done in time to pick my daughter up from the school bus. I usually, to be fair, am not done with work by that time, but that that would include the ideal day and maybe doing a hot yoga class with my girlfriend. Yeah, there you go. You said you're a creator and I'm similar. I feel like I'm constantly creating and I just get so much energy. I don't even feel like it's work. Yes. And that's the beauty of it for sure. That's where you get to have great success without hard work. It doesn't mean that I'm not putting in smart time and and hours to make it happen. It also doesn't mean that, that I'm not giving up something to do something else, but really doing the things that you love to do, that is such a gift. I want to thank you for putting all of your experience, your decades of experience into your book because it's fantastic. You've seen so much, done so much. I think I've done so much and seen so much, but you've done way more than I have. And I I just really enjoyed sitting down with you and getting to know you a little better and, and just learning from your experience. I really appreciate it. 
And likewise. And, and I, I like to think of it as the beginning of a journey, for sure, not the end. You know, I think that we can stay remarkably youthful by being healthy and being active and having things that we love. There's nothing that's, in my view, that puts you in the grave faster than doing something you hate to do day after day after day. Something that gives you energy is just the opposite. And I want to thank you for coming here and interviewing me in person. What an absolute treat. I look forward to having lunch with you afterwards and we'll we'll sort of compare notes. The value that you're giving to your listeners is really cool. AJ, a guy that works in my team, and I listened to one of your podcasts in order to prep and say, okay, you know, what do we expect? And we're just taking a bunch of notes. We're like, wow, you know, we do not know everything. And it's great to have valuable resources like you. So thank you. No, thank you. You know, the interview with Paul reminds me that we are all one relationship away from reaching the next level. And sometimes we limit ourselves in what we think we can do because we're limited by our own experience, by our own reality. But then you meet someone that completely could change the entire game for you. I mean, imagine you, you go to, to an event and you just hang out with this guy, you know, and you're, you're really getting along. You find out he's a billionaire and he loves real estate. His biggest problem is finding more investments and paying less taxes. And he's like, can you help me with that? I have a real big problem. You're like, oh my gosh. Yeah, that's what I do. I look for deals all the time. My biggest problem is money. Now, all of a sudden, your little thinking is saying, well, I'm going to go after a little four or five unit deal, whatever you think is you can do in your reality. And then all of a sudden, you come across this person who completely changes your reality. You're like, why am I thinking small? And so that the lesson really is, why are we thinking small in the first place? And this is what my sense was with Paul Morris, because we went to lunch afterwards and he challenged me personally about, you know, what I want to do, what my hopes and dreams are, what my goals are. He challenged me and it was similar to a podcast I listened to with Lewis Howes, who interviewed Grant Cardone. Grant Cardone, obviously unbelievable, big thinker, very accomplished. And Lewis Howes was pushing Grant Cardone to the limit of his comfort zone. I didn't even think that existed with Grant Cardone. And he was squirming and like a little schoolgirl in, in a chair being interviewed by Lewis Howes. And it comes to me. And even that conversation with Paul, even he had a comfort zone because then I was having a little fun with him because he was giving me a little bit of hard time. So I gave him a hard time, made him squirm a little bit. <laughs> and it was clear to me that we all have our comfort zones. We just operate at different levels. The point is we want to continue operating at higher and higher levels. Yes, we'll always have our comfort zone, but how can we get into the next level? And it's really by surrounding yourself with people who are at the level that you want to be. You hang around these people and they look at you and they are so encouraging because they've been there, right? They've seen that. They're so encouraging that, look, I believe in you. You might not believe in yourself, but I believe in you. You can do this. And that is extremely empowering because you walk away from them going, man, maybe I can do that. And that was the experience I had with Paul and he's not the only one. So I, I hope you got value out of that. And the lesson really is, look, surround yourself with mentors. They're paid or unpaid. It doesn't matter. Do whatever it takes to be around people that are or have what you want to be or become and just look for those. If you have to pay for them, then make the investment. It is always worth the investment. It's unbelievable when you pay for some program or something to be around someone. It's a lot of money sometimes, but man, the people you meet in the process, it literally it propels you to the next level. So that's my message to you guys is surround yourself with people who are operating at the higher level. Anyway, guys, appreciate you guys. I will catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. 
Till next time.